A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. The home of common sense, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. There's plenty to go out this morning. There's plenty to talk about, plenty to discuss. First up, uh, the government, once again, in its crackdown on antisocial behaviour, has decided to now crack down on party houses, on nasty neighbours, on noisy neighbours, on people who rent out their place for Airbnb parties so that you can have your weekend completely ruined uh, by a lot of people getting drunk and throwing up all over the place. Marvellous, isn't it? I mean, there are a few things in this country that are going wrong. I'm not sure you're going to fix them all uh, by cracking down on beggars, um, antisocial behaviour in houses, and also, of course, making sure that everybody drives very, very carefully around every single city in every single part of the country. No more than 11 miles per hour, please, otherwise somebody might get hurt. We've got an amazing video to show you coming up a little bit later on from Oxford, uh, where some locals seem to have decided to set up a roadblock all of their own to stop people from driving down their street. Fascinating stuff. There doesn't appear to be any rules that say you can do that, uh, but this is what people are doing, empowered, uh, of course, as they are, by the local councils. People like Sadiq Khan in London, uh, people like the Oxford councillors who have decided to set out their net zero targets, people who say that, you know, you shouldn't be driving a car, you should be walking everywhere, you should be able to go to a shop within 15 minutes of where you live, and that will be that. We'll also talk about an interesting survey which proves what we've been saying for a very long time, that most people in this country think the criminal justice system simply doesn't work, it's not good enough, they should be sending people to prison for longer periods of time, they shouldn't be lending them out as quickly as they do. All of the stuff that we've been saying over the course of the last several years is now becoming the truth. We knew it was the truth a long time ago. It's only now that everybody else is basically catching up on it. 0344 499 1000 is the number. If you've ever had any rowdy neighbours or any rowdy tenants, we'd love to hear your stories. We'll be talking about that, of course, later on. Alex Salmon joins us as well. Uh, He's going to have plenty to say about Hamza Youssef, who narrowly became the new First Minister of Scotland. I think he's going to be sworn in today. Uh, Won the leadership contest, which was announced yesterday right here on Talk TV on Ian Collins' show. Laura Dodsworth is here. Here as well. Uh, she'll be explaining to us how she managed to do what she wrote about in the Sunday Times this week, a very controversial piece that she wrote, which upset quite a lot of people, uh, in which she admitted to killing her own food uh, before she ate it. 
It's a bit grisly, it's a bit grim, uh, but it's something that we should all be talking about and we should all be thinking about. Also, LaDonna Harvey is here as well. Stephen Wolfe uh, talking about the migrant situation too, because now the hotel business is really getting rather out of hand. 0344 499 uh, Oh, and one bit of good news for you. Jeremy Corbyn's not going to be allowed to run as a Labour candidate. Uh, funny that, isn't it, since Keir Starmer thought he should be Prime Minister just a couple of years ago. Incredible. You know, what about hypocrisy from the Labour Party? Also, I think Ed Millipede's going to be speaking while we're on. Uh, if so, we'll be going to have a look and see whether he's having a bacon sandwich or playing the ukulele. Uh, or whether he's got anything interesting to say. Uh, I suspect all three of those things will be incorrect. 0344-499-1000 is the number. We're going to kick things off with Candice Holdsworth. Uh, She's here right now, right here on Talk TV. Let's do it. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Tuesday morning. It's not looking particularly nice out there today, but... uh, we thought spring had kind of sprung yesterday. I drove all the way out to West London with the sunroof open again, uh, and it was a thing of great beauty. The sun was shining, it was lovely. It was even a little bit warm. But will it be that all the way through this week? Will we end up finding ourselves in the middle of spring come April, which is on Saturday, April Fool's Day, of course, Saturday morning. Watch out for your children. Uh, but let's talk now to Candice Holdsworth, journalist, commentator, uh, woman of this parish. Uh, Candice, a very good morning to you. I hope you don't object to me calling you a woman. Yeah, <laughs> I'm fine with that. I mean, I have had two children, so it's kind of an indication that I might. Well, you know, you say that, you say that, but you know, people make assumptions, and you have to be very they careful. Do. You know, <laughs> unbelievable stuff. Listen, uh, let's talk a little bit about the crime situation. I think in this country, yeah. because clearly, uh, we've got a government that wants to be seen to be doing things, but it's doing sort of what I would regard as tinkering around the edges, because at the same time as saying, you know, they're going to pick up on the beggars of this world, they're going to approach the homeless people and make sure that they have somewhere else to go, Um, they're going to evict rowdy neighbours, but what they're not going to do um, is put people in prison for very long if they actually commit a proper serious crime. Yes, and this is what is so popular with the, the public, Um, People, I mean, I think we know this anecdotally, but this has obviously been borne out now by more research, that people think sentencing is way too lenient. And people were so shocked about that murder of um, that poor young woman walking home, Zara Alina. I mean, we're talking about the probation service now. And the man who murdered her was out on probation. I mean, he had like a long list of sentences that he'd served, short sentences, And people couldn't believe it. They just could not believe that someone like this was walking the streets. Mm. If you've ever read the spectator writer, Theodore Dalrymple, the former prison doctor, he's written a lot about this and just about how lenient the system is. And it's completely out of step with the public that wants to see justice Mm. served. And justice means much longer sentences, especially for very egregious crimes, like attacking children. Well, exactly right. And also releasing people who are clearly dangerous to society, even though they've somehow sat in front of a parole board and convinced those people that they're fine. You know, any normal thinking person would say, well, no, you know, Gary Glitter, great example. You don't let people like that back out so that they can do precisely what they did as soon as they did get out. No, exactly. It it depends how you look at um, crime and punishment. I think that there's been a move now in like the last maybe 50, 60 years, maybe more, to focus on rehabilitation of the criminal rather than just punishment. So giving them a chance to behave well, have time out of prison, rather than maybe looking at it as punishment, solely as punishment. Mm. I mean, I don't want to live in in an unmerciful society but you know what you risk is you risk being completely naive 
about people like Gary Glitter, who is not going to reform his ways and who was barely out of prison before having to be recalled again. Right. And I think the other problem that we don't know so much about is that in order, I'm told from, from people who work in the criminal justice system, in order to even be sent to jail in the first place, you've probably committed somewhere between 25 and 35 previous offences because up until that moment, uh, it's not considered serious enough, serious enough to put you away. Yes, and the problem is, is at the lower level, if you are not prosecuting crimes, maybe more minor offences, that then emboldens people to carry out more crimes right. and it escalates over time and it is interesting though because Suella Braverman has said that she is a fan of the broken windows policy yeah. which was pioneered in New York under Giuliani where you do prosecute people for more minor crimes and it's thought that if you if you um, crack down on them at that level then you prevent it getting worse along the line yeah. so maybe that's why the government wants to focus more on maybe, you know, more perceived trivial things, antisocial things, and then hopefully that will have an escalatory effect. Well, it might do, and I don't know whether you're a proponent of that particular system. I mean, you've obviously lived in different parts of the world. I don't know what it's been like when, where, where you've ever been. But I wonder about the efficacy of this, only because we now know that if you ring for a police officer because you've had a fairly serious crime happen to you, like you've had your car stolen or you've had a burglary uh, or maybe you've even been assaulted, there's a pretty slim chance that you'll either, one, get through to the cops. I mean, we had people ringing us yesterday saying, whenever we've called 999, we get told off for calling 999 because apparently it's not an emergency. You know, so there's no police at the moment to come and uh, come to your aid. So how are they going to deal with all of this so-called, um, you know, minor crime? This is what Peter Blexley has spoken about a lot. I mean, he absolutely hates the, the categorization of it as low-level crime because for the people who suffer that crime, it's not low-level at all. Actually, that has a deep effect on them. But it's true. I think the systems and procedures need to be put in place that these crimes can actually be handled because if they're not being handled at the moment, how are they going to be handled in the future? Because these, because police, policemen and police women claim that they're just they're not able to focus on these things so clearly there needs to be more systemic change yes i think so and as far as the uh, the sort of the nasty neighbors are concerned i mean that isn't what i regard as low-level crime actually because it can become something really really quite sinister i mean ian collins was talking about this yesterday you know there's nothing worse than sitting in what should be your sort of haven i.e your front room or yeah. sitting in your bedroom but your life is being made a misery because you've got really really horrible neighbors I had friends of mine moved into a house and they had small children and the neighbours were having loud parties all night on school nights, keeping the children awake all night, not mm. wanting to get up for school. I mean, the stress in the household was so loud. I mean, was so high. And they couldn't just go and talk to them. They tried to go and talk to them and these people just fobbed them off. I mean, mm. it just made them feel so unsafe yeah. and my grandmother in Manchester the council moved just a bunch of um, basically drug addicts into the flat below hers who were doing all kinds of things at all hours of the night and eventually the council evicted them but I just thought how thoughtless to move people like that underneath an elderly pensioner I mean it was the most thoughtless thing I mean she just she was just stressed for so long you're right it is that is your that is your haven that yeah. is the place where you're supposed to feel safe and it completely undermines that yes and i'm afraid because there are some people in life who just will not obey the law will do whatever the hell they like they yeah. do they do it because they know they will get away with it they do exactly but this is why you need to get harsh for 
things that you perceive to be minor, like a bike theft, for instance, or, you know, someone's purse being stolen. You know, people need to learn that if I do things like this, I'm going to be punished for it. Because, I mean, Theodore Dalrymple, who I'll go back to, the prison doctor, has said, most people who are sentenced for a crime will admit to having committed a string of other crimes for which they've never been held to account. Exactly right. And as some people are pointing out here, um, if evictions become easier, though, um, you know what's going to happen next. The Circo will soon move in, uh, the people that provide the homes for all sorts of people who are coming from other countries, and they've got all these contracts with the government. They're offering, in many, many areas of Britain, five-year leases to, to landlords to say, we'll pay all the bills, you won't ever miss a, a rent payment because we will take care of it all, courtesy of this very generous government of ours. Uh, and you'll end up uh, with a load of houses being commandeered by the, by the illegal migrant programme. We need to think more about communities. So, I mean, I mentioned my grandmother, for instance, just thoughtlessly moving in these people whose life was completely incompatible with that of an elderly woman. And I think that the same needs to be for who landlords move into communities. You have to think about that community as a whole. And you can't just incentivize landlords, like you say, through rent, for instance. Actually, no. How are these people going to integrate with the the neighbours that that are already Mm. living there? And I think that needs to be a really important consideration. And I know that we can sometimes get a bit sort of, you know, airy-fairy on this programme, but I don't object to that. And I'm going to ask you a question which might be a bit airy-fairy. Are we in, in, in danger in this country, do you think, Candice, of kind of taking the wrong thing seriously while all the serious stuff is just kind of carrying on and getting worse and worse and worse. We hear all the time that, you know, the systems are broken, um, you know, the NHS doesn't work, the school system's not great, the border force aren't very good, the police aren't really doing their job, you know, and yet here we are talking about beggars and, and nasty neighbours and all of that, you know? I know, I know. There are, there are some really serious issues, and I think people have lost faith in the politicians and in the process but I don't think cynicism is as bad here as in other countries. Like, I, like you say, I've lived in other countries and I feel like in those other countries that I lived, people have just given up on politics altogether. I mean, they just focus on themselves, on their communities. They expect nothing of their politicians. But I don't think it's quite the case here yet. And I do think that that's a positive thing. One thing I will say is I do think there has been a shift in politics here. And I think it was after Brexit. Mm. Suddenly, you couldn't, like Labour, for instance, couldn't take certain constituencies for granted anymore. They couldn't guarantee that those constituencies would vote for them. So now I think politicians know that they actually have to do something for people. People actually look at politics and policy and think, what are you going to do for me? And I think that that is a really important shift. And I think politicians are becoming attuned to that now, that actually I can't just count on the red wall to vote for me anymore. I actually have to do things that make them want to vote for me. And I think that's a really positive thing. Yeah, I think that is a good move. We're going to talk about Jeremy Corbyn in a moment, funnily enough, because Momentum are not very happy with Keir Starmer, who's basically decided he can't run as a Labour candidate anymore. We'll talk some more about that. Uh, we'll talk a bit about migrants, of course, as well. 03444991000. Even Hamza Youssef may get a mention. He's the new, uh, or about to be made the new First Minister of Scotland. He says he's going to continue uh, with Nicola Sturgeon's trans crusade. That's not a very good start, is it? This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, talk radio and talk TV.
Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We've heard an awful lot uh, about the crackdown on antisocial behaviour, the crackdown on Airbnb party houses in particular. The trouble is, of course, uh, whether or not you can find a police officer is the big question. Uh, we're talking to Candice Holdsworth. We'll get more from her in a moment. Uh, one, Mike, one word describes this country, says Mick, it is broken. And Peter says, in 2019, a job threatened my daughter uh, when she stopped him stealing for the third time that day. That's in a shop. Uh, the magistrates let him off. He came back to smash up the stock as well. A few weeks ago, he hit a man with an iron bar, stabbed another, robbed two more. Well done to the justice system. And that is, of course, one of the biggest problems we've got. Terry in Birmingham says, Mike, before Rishi makes any more promises, he should keep to the five he's already given. What tosh? There isn't a finite resource of coppers. I find uh, give people a lot to do uh, and now it gets done properly. Um, it's a very good point. Now, just before we go back to Candice, have a look at this piece of video, because what we're seeing now in this country is a lot of people sort of taking the law into their own hands. Now, this is not a case of vigilante justice. This is a case of what I would call busybody neighbours trying to stop motorists from driving down a particular road. This is in Oxford. Hello. Morning. Have you got any right to stop here? Uh, uh, yeah, you'll see that this is a no through motor vehicles. This is motor Yeah, vehicle. do you go to work? Uh, yes, I'm on my way to work. Yeah, so after the time you're going? I'll stop here talk to my friends for about 15 minutes. Yeah, you stay here just all your day, just wasting people's time. Uh, no, enforcing the traffic law. You're not allowed to drive through here. So, have you got anything to show me that you can stop me? Uh, see that sign? Yeah, excuse me, I want to see you. No, you don't understand. Yeah, don't worry. I want to see if you got something that showed me that you can stop me. No, no, no. You, can you stop me to go through there? No, but if you go through, you will get a fine. Okay, I want to get through. It's a great shame you can't sort of think a bit more about it. No, okay. Can you, can you open, please? Thank you. If I get a fine. I will film you going through. Yeah, okay, don't worry. Okay, can you move now? I'm late. I need to go to work. Excuse me. Move. I'm going to get a fine. You got my everything. Now you move now. Okay? Excuse me. You're taking a... Excuse me. I said you to move now. Just go. Listen. You move now. You took everything about me. Now you think you can call the police. You're not being caught. This is the situation in Oxford now, right, where people are taking it upon themselves to shut down roads, to tell people they can't drive there, uh, with seemingly no apparent right to do so. Candice, this is going to be happening all over the place now, because these kind of do-gooders, as I describe them, two of them in high-vis jackets, one of them uh, who says he's just stopped to talk to them, uh, basically telling motorists they can't go somewhere. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason for them having that right to do. It's terrible. You know, people with political ideologies have just got free reign. I mean, if you even look at these climate protesters that shut down the streets and prevent people going about their everyday business, yeah. they seem to be of that ilk. I mean, that poor woman. I mean, she stayed pretty calm and then eventually lost it. Yeah. I mean, she stayed a lot calmer than I would have been. My yeah, goodness. Right. And also, that you don't quite... It's hard for me to restrain myself. I know. And you don't quite hear it happening. But basically, you hear one of the women standing at the gate saying, basically, oh, it's a great shame that you can't think... Obviously, what she's about to say is, it's a great shame you can't think about saving the planet and getting out of your car and walking. You know, what's it going to do with them? Exactly. People have to get to work. People have to make a living. I mean, they... 
Uh, these people have way too much time on their hands and their head is just full with all these political beliefs and they become a nuisance and they become a nuisance to ordinary people and they can't even treat members of their community with enough respect to understand that they also need to go about their business. Yeah, absolutely right. A couple of other things to mention to you. The Labour Party, uh, we know that Hamza Youssef has taken over in uh, Scotland. The Labour Party apparently think that might be an opening for them to win some seats back. I think they might be right because he says he's going to go down the same route uh, that destroyed Nicola Sturgeon, i.e. he's going to be continuing on with the Gender Recognition Act. Yes, this could be a huge opportunity for Labour now. If it is, if it is the case, as many think, that that was what was brought Nicola, if that is that is what brought Nicola Sturgeon down, and if he's going to push forward with it, like he said he wants to, then that could be actually pretty bad for the SNP. I mean, we do know that they've lost a huge number of members in the last number in the last few years. So I would like to see what the implications for that are going to be in the next general election. Because this could be an opening for Labour to finally get a hold in Scotland again. Yeah. I mean, I don't know enough about Scottish politics to understand exactly what um, this means, the election of, of Humza Yousaf. But I do know that he is not, a, he's very illiberal. I mean, he's backed pretty much every illiberal policy, like the named person scheme, um, very, very strict um, free speech rules in the hate speech law, yeah. this GRC bill. I cannot see how what he believes maps on to what people in Scotland believe, which is known to be a little bit more liberal than the rest of the United Kingdom. Well, he's not even that popular within his own party. I mean, he only just about edged it from Kate Forbes, which should never have been the case. I mean, she shouldn't have been anywhere near him. But he's also um, more or less admitted that he ducked out uh, of the... um, uh, the, 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 the Fair Marriage Act in, yes. um, and when, when the Scottish Parliament uh, legalised gay marriage on the grounds that he didn't want to upset his local mosque. Exactly. So he couldn't even take a stand. I mean, Kate Forbes was criticised for her beliefs, but at least she was open and frank about them. I mean, I disagree with them, but she at least had the courage to say, this is what I believe. But he's not like that. I mean, he'll sort of do what suits him when it suits him. Yeah. Interesting as well from Momentum, who've issued this statement based upon Keir Starmer's um, rule that Jeremy Corbyn will not be allowed to stand as a Labour candidate at the next election. Uh, They say this, nearly three years ago to the day, Keir Starmer thanked Jeremy Corbyn for his service to the Labour Party and called him a friend. This came after a fraudulent leadership election campaign in which Keir lied and lied and lied, promising to build on Jeremy's legacy and unite the mass membership party he had helped to build. Today, like so much else, this pledge lies in tatters, sacrificed at the altar of Starmer's political opportunism. That's the Labour Party for you. Well, it's not it's not just the Conservative Party that's divided. I mean, the Labour Party still has all these divisions as well. I mean, I find it amazing that Keir Starmer is being so ruthless with Jeremy Corbyn now. I mean, he served in his shadow cabinet. Mm. I mean, what happened? I mean, it was fine then, but it's not fine now. But it's because they want to win the next election. And they know that one of the reasons that they did lose a lot of their traditional voters was because Jeremy Corbyn was the leader and they want to win. But it is going to annoy. This is not just annoy, it's going to seriously anger all the Jeremy Corbyn supporters who are still around and oh, who there's still loads think of that he was robbed. Well, this is it. I mean, nobody uh, who was a Jeremy Corbyn supporter has accepted that Keir Starmer is doing the right thing, uh, not just about Jeremy Corbyn, but about anything. You know, they're worried that he's becoming like Tony Blair. Yes. They don't seem to, to, to know or remember that Tony Blair's the only Labour politician who actually got himself elected um, over the course of the last 30 or 40 years. 
Yeah, everyone thought Labour was finished. I mean, people really did think Labour was finished until Tony Blair came along. And then he completely rebranded the party. I mean, you will have people like Peter Hitchens who said, who says, well, actually, fundamentally, the nature of Labour did not change. What changed was the way that they spoke about themselves. They were just less openly radical. But it just goes to show, like, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, this is how it is for Labour. It will always be this way for Labour. How do they reconcile those two parts of themselves, the, the, the more, the, you know, the radical socialist mm. politics with the more centrist, pragmatic um, side that wants to win elections and know that elections are won that way? Well, that's the trouble. But we will talk some more about it, I'm obviously sure. Candice Holdsworth, thank you very much indeed. Kevin in Lincolnshire says, please stop calling them momentum. Call them what they are, the Communist Party. Well, I, I think you're probably not wrong there. But, I mean, this is the problem for Labour, isn't it? Keir Starmer, as soon as he becomes um, the coming man, as soon as he emerges as the possible next Prime Minister of this country, he's going to face criticism from the left of his party, the people who hate him, the people who say that he used to be Jeremy Corbyn's friend until he stabbed him in the back or perhaps straight in the front. Um, he also has to start talking about some of his policies, which, to be honest, one, are not that different from what the Tories want to do, and two, if they are, are not actually feasible. That is the problem. Coming up, we'll be going to Scotland, though, because we want to find out what is going on up there. Alex Salmon joins us later in the show. But first up, it's Kevin McKenna from The Herald uh, on Hamza Yusuf and what he's going to be like. This is Talk TV. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Lots going on. Laura Dodsworth is going to be here telling us how she killed an animal and then ate it. It doesn't sound so ridiculous when you say it like that, but in fact, it's caused an awful lot of controversy and she'll be letting us know exactly how it happened and why uh, it happened as well. Uh, also, Alex Salmon's going to join us a little bit later on, uh, the head of the Alba Party. An interesting piece of The Spectator this week in which it said that basically uh, Alex Salmon has been the one man that has profited from all of this self-destruction uh, that the... Uh, SNP has been involved in over the last uh, several weeks since the uh, demise and the resignation of Nicola Sturgeon. But who better to speak to before that uh, than a man I've known for many years uh, who has his finger very firmly on the pulse, Kevin McKenna, journalist at The Herald. Kevin, um, very good morning to you. How are you doing? I'm fine, mate. How are you doing? I'm, very, I'm very well indeed. Now, um, we've got a new first minister as of sometime this afternoon, I think. Um, but the SNP is not out of the woods yet. And in fact, some people think... Uh, the, the 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 election of Hamza is going to lead to Labour winning back some seats. Uh, I think that's not an unreasonable proposition. Uh, the um, we knew that the SNP were divided going into this, uh, and that was only six weeks ago that the contest started, and the results have uh, borne it out. It was fifty two percent for Hamza. And forty eight percent for his main challenger, Kate Forbes. Yeah. Um, and that's and and Kate Forbes, for anyone uh, who doesn't know, Kate Forbes uh, was very much uh, the outsider. Hamza was the favoured uh, candidate of the SNP establishment to an almost ridiculous degree. Uh, he he was given uh all the machinery of the SNP machine which is quite formidable he had the assistance of Nicola Sturgeon's uh, chief advisor one or two other people working in a way in the background and the support of the vast majority of the SNP's professional wing by that I mean their elected 
MSPs at Holyrood and their elected MPs at Westminster. And still, and, and there was a massive onslaught at the beginning of the contest targeting uh, Kate Forbes and orchestrated from the SNP central office. Right. Um, and she still won 48% of the votes. So this is a party that is almost ruinously divided mm. and that eclipses a lot of the divisions that we've seen over the last two decades in the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. And, and interestingly enough, uh, I think one of your colleagues up there uh, tweeted out, um, uh, retweeted rather, an SNP tweet, uh, which was retweeted by them, saying that there was a great sense of relief that Hamza Yusuf had won. And it was like, well, it doesn't sound like a very, a, a very sort of um, together party, a very united party, if that's what they're going to be saying. Well, I think I think there is definitely a, a great degree of relief amongst the SNP establishment because both Kate Forbes and the, the, the third contestant in the leadership race, Ash Regan, had made it had made it clear from the outset that there would have to be a clear out of the the dozens of advisors, the the party fluffers, the the, the kind of the you know the the ridiculous number of uh, MPs and MSPs. They have who who haven't done anything about independence and haven't contributed much to the national conversation. So they're all cheering because their jobs are safe and their gold-plated pensions are and their expenses mm. um, and their their, their 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 big salaries for another few years under Hamza, and 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 in that it reveals the massive disconnect that has opened up over the last few years mm. between this professional entitled class within the SNP and the wider uh, pro-independence movement. Right. And so just in the short term, he's calling for another independence referendum. He's calling, as he did before, uh, for the end of the monarchy. He doesn't want the king anymore, apparently. Uh, he said previously that might happen within five years of independence. He's also vowing to carry on uh, with the trans rights agenda pushed by Nicola Sturgeon, which was what got her into trouble in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I... He's very quickly, he, at the beginning of the contest, he was dismissed as the the continuity candidate. Yeah. And in the course of the six weeks, he, he seemed to have moved away from that and saying, no, I agree, there has to be change because we haven't really achieved very much in our eight years in power. Um, but within a few hours, uh, as you just pointed out, he's gone for a section 30 uh, order, which is the order by which the Westminster government would would grant a second referendum, but we all knew how that would end. Why would they do that? Um, he has said that he will go for a section thirty five, which is um, the UK government had intervened to block Scotland's GRR bill, Gender Recognition Reform Bill, um, because it uh, it was against. Uh, various aspects of the 2010 Equality Bill. And the legal advice, as far as we know, and this was pointed out by the other two candidates, is that they would fail. Yeah. And Hamza had said, yeah, well, you know, just a few weeks ago, he'd said, well, you know, subject to legal advice, we will challenge that. But he's he seems to have ignored that unless he's somehow managed to get legal advice in, in the last few hours. So yeah. nothing really changed. And, and 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 this kind of appeals to the core of those people I was talking about. It's flag waving, it's virtue signalling. 
But it also signals that nothing much will change mm. and there's no recognition or acknowledgement of the troubles that got the SNP into this ruinous state right. in the first place. And meanwhile, the same questions remain, don't they, about the money and about Peter Murrell's involvement yeah. in everything? I mean, where is that all going? Well, you know, there's there, there's there seems to be an ongoing police investigation which has been ongoing for more than 18 months uh, there's been a little bit more sound in that about that over the last couple of weeks um we've had the resignation of peter morell who is who is nicholas sturgeon's husband who's yeah. the chief executive of the party um because uh he had uh, let's just say that they were reluctant to indicate the true nature of the, the amount of members that the party had lost. And we now know that it's 50,000 over the last four years. Yeah. Uh, the head of press had to go, somebody you know, um, Murray Foote, yes. because he was lied to about those figures. Um, Liz Lloyd, who had been Nicola Sturgeon's main gatekeeper, had to go after it was revealed that she was secretly helping Hamza. So this party is 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 plunged into chaos, incompetence, possibly corruption. Um, and anybody who was taking over at this stage would have uh, faced a massive task. And it can, you know, for those of us who favor independence, but even for the for the, the country abroad, because, he, you know, Hamza's not just been elected as the leader of the mm. SNP. He is the first minister of Scotland, which, like the rest of the UK, is facing a cost of living crisis. Um, and, uh, you know, tellingly, on his last day as health minister, because Hamza was health minister up until yesterday when he was elected leader, um, it's been shown that waiting times in every category in Scotland, hospital waiting times, um, are far higher in, in each, every single category mm. now than when Hamza took over as health minister uh, in 2021. So you can see why there is optimism. There is there's some glee amongst unionist supporters that it would appear that um, that the breakup of the union is nowhere near as close as the SNP would have, have I disbelieve. No, exactly right. Good to talk to you, Kevin. Thanks very much indeed. Kevin McKenna from the Herald up in Scotland there saying that uh, the, the, the more the thing changes, the more it stays the same, effectively, that nothing really has changed within the SNP. We'll talk to Alex Salmon later on uh, in the show and we'll get his perspective on what's happened. But to all intents and purposes, the SNP is carrying on as if it's business as usual. And it can't possibly really carry on as if it's business as usual because there's so much else going on. Now, talking of so much else going on, uh, as ever, right here on Talk TV, we keep you across all the things that are happening. Ed Miliband is currently speaking about Labour's new green prosperity plan. Let's go and have a listen. And wind. Now, we know about this because we did it in the UK before Ira was a twinkle in Joe Biden's eye, or indeed you might say Joe Manchin's eye. It was the renewables obligation introduced by the last Labour government that kick-started onshore and offshore wind. It was the feed-in tariff introduced by the last Labour government which turbocharged solar. And bringing in these policies was hard, and I remember lots of people said wind and solar power could never be an answer for Britain. But here's the thing, and it's really important as we think about IRA and the impact. We wouldn't have seen an 89% fall in the cost of solar power 
and a 60% fall in the cost of wind over the last decade alone if it hadn't been for this combination of public and private sector investment. IRA also recognises that the government has an essential role in providing the infrastructure which can enable countries to compete for the green economy of the future. Benefits which won't be captured by one yeah, company. Thanks alone. very much, uh, Ed. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm not willing to offer you the job, I'm afraid. Uh, you haven't passed the test. You're talking absolute cobblers. Nobody knows what IRIS even stands for. I know what I know what it stands for, but nobody else does. And also, don't forget, this is the guy who told you when he was environmental minister uh, that you should buy diesel cars. It'd be better for the environment. That's him. Ed Millipede, that's the guy, without his ukulele today uh, and without his bacon sarni. Uh, but he's still talking absolute cobblers. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots going on uh, in this hour. Alex Salmon is going to join us, former Scottish First Minister, of course, and former leader of the SNP, now leader of the ALBA party. Uh, he's put out uh, what can only be described as the hand of friendship to Humza Yusuf, uh, asking him uh, to support organisations and convene an independence convention, thereby uh, sort of getting everybody together in Scotland who wants independence for Scotland uh, to try and find some kind of middle ground. But we'll find out from him uh, what he actually makes uh, of of what happened yesterday. Uh, here's one from Brad in Cambridge. He says, morning, Mike. Isn't it ironic that after years of Hamza saying that the Brexit vote was so close it should be rerun, 52 to 48% is good enough for him? Uh, well, indeed, that is the margin, of course, that he won by against Kate Forbes, a rather slim margin. Also, Laura Dodsworth coming up in a little while as well. Uh, she'll tell us what it felt like to kill the animal that she was about to eat, uh, which is a bit of a shocking story, but fascinating nonetheless. Let's talk to Alex Salmon, though, and see what he makes of it all. Um, they used to say it was morning in America, Alex, when uh, Ronald Reagan was in charge. It feels like about a you know, quarter to six in the evening in Scotland at the moment. What do you reckon? Well, I- I've been sitting here this morning uh, watching Independent Republic uh, as a sign uh, with the sound off, as I normally do, uh, and you've been appearing with a big sign under you saying "nuisance neighbour." <laughs> so I, I've been thinking, what have you been up to, mate? Well, listen, I, mean, I, 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 I plead, uh, I plead guilty to being a nuisance, but not actually a nuisance neighbour. I'm certainly a nuisance uh, all the rest of the I, time. I think, I think it's the Sam singing on a Sunday morning. But <laughs> I, I thought, I thought in 500 acres, the nearest neighbour was the was the next county in England. Well, that is <laughs> true. That is true. Nobody knows what I get up to when I'm at home because they can't see me or hear me, which is very good. Um, but, I mean, the SNP is, is is busted, isn't it? I mean, it's not been fixed by what happened yesterday. Uh, it's probably been busted even more. Well, the, the polite way to say it is it's got challenges. Uh, and you, you might say, well, why do I care about it, given I lead a, a rival party? Yes. Well, I, I care about it because they, I care about the national movement. I care about independence for Scotland. Uh, and, you know, I've spent a fair amount of time <laughs> trying to achieve it. So I really like the cause not to be knocked back. Mm. Now, nothing's set in stone. I mean, uh, Hamza was only elected yesterday. You asked about the statement I released. Look, everybody's entitled on the day they're elected to be congratulated, Mike. Yes. I mean, that, that, that's only polite. Uh, and what will matter now is what Hamza, how he wears the crown. Uh, does, he, does he wear it with... Uh, uh, Likely with uh, a vision for the future, or, or does it become a huge burden for him? Well, this is the thing, and, and I mean, we've got Anna Sawa, the Labour leader, already calling for an election. Um, which I'd have to say I kind of agree with because, you know, nobody voted for Hamza Yusuf. Only a third of those eligible to vote uh, in the SNP ballot actually voted for him. He's not. He's a bit like Rishi Sunak. He doesn't exactly have a massive mandate personally, does he? 
Well, it's slightly one up on Richie Sunak, isn't it? Because after all, Richie Sunak got beaten in the internal <laughs> Tory ballot. Yes. So at least Hums are narrowly avoided that. Although there is an issue, I mean, this ritual calling for an election, that's what opposition parties do. And, you know, and Anna Sarwar's do no more than going down a well-trodden path of ritual election calling by opposition parties. There's something of an argument. I mean, what what, uh, what Hamza should remember is the majority of people voted against them in the SNP ballot. If you, if you add the, the votes of uh, Ash Reagan and Kate Forbes together, they were greater than his vote. Yeah. And you would hope and believe that he would try to pick up some of the good ideas from these two excellent women candidates uh, and say, well, actually, they knew what they were talking about. Maybe, maybe I should do some of what they were saying. And, you know, for example, why don't you... He dropped this nonsense uh, about uh, you know fighting the UK government on the ground yeah. of 35 the transgender legislation. I mean, you know me, Mike. I, I don't mind picking a fight with Westminster. In fact, I think it's a national duty for a Scottish leader to pick a fight with these idiots in London. <laughs> but you pick a fight on ground yes. where you've got the people behind you, not where the people are against you. That's just stupid. Well, exactly. Exactly right. And, and if, that, if that's his first kind of move, it's a bad move. It's the wrong move. And it's the move that got his predecessor kicked out uh, of the First Minister's very nice establishment at Butte House. Well, well I'm hoping that, that, that Hamza's just uh, saying this, so he, he can get the Greens on board for the vote this afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> once, once that's safely out of the way and he's safely installed <laughs> as First Minister, uh, you know, sense and common sense and rationality will will break out uh, and he'll say, oh my goodness, I've seen the legal advice and despite my best wishes, uh, it's probably not prudent to go ahead with this. And I'm so sorry, Patrick Harvey and the Greens, uh, but, you know, I did my best. I'm mm. hoping that, uh, you know, behind it, there's a bit of political guile uh, because, it, you know, basically, if he, if he runs on the transgender legislation, in the words of that excellent film where the legal has landed, he'll be make the charge of the light brigade look like a, a sensible military manoeuvre. <laughs> exactly right. Now, I'm not normally a fan of Ian McWhirter's uh, uh, fine words, but he's got a very interesting piece of spectator. I'm not, mate. Uh, incred- you left-wingers, I thought you all stuck together, <laughs> you guys. Well, he's written a great piece of the spectator, a fascinating piece, in which he basically alleges that uh, that all of your former political enemies have sort of bitten the dust in a rather fast fashion in the past couple of weeks. It's extraordinary, isn't it? That uh, and I think last time we spoke, it was three years since your uh, run-in with them all, uh, when you when you were completely and utterly cleared of all the things that they said you'd done. Um, they're all finished, and you seem to be on the rise. Yeah, well, I've been in a, a state of mourning over the last few days as I've seen resignation after resignation. It's hurt me deeply. But I, listen, I, I read Ian's piece, uh, and I agree with you. He's an excellent writer. He knows how to write a pen a phrase or two, does Ian McWhorter. Yeah. But I, I must deny that I'm responsible for these multiple resignations. You know, I, I didn't tell the SMP establishment to lie about the membership figures. I didn't tell the... Uh, my successor, Nicola Sturgeon, to drive up a cul-de-sac in Scottish independence. I didn't tell Nicola Sturgeon... Without a licence, get... as it turns out. <laughs> well, I didn't tell her to get pissed about transgender legislation. I mean, whatever they've done, they, they did to themselves. They didn't need my help to do it. So I deny any responsibility for their resignations. They, they were all self-imposed resignations. They, 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 I think these people 
should have the credit for their own resignation. Yes. And when you talk about a sort of um, a, a, a new beginning for the independence movement and, and a, a formation of a, of a kind of independence convention, what, what, how, how would that look? What would that look like? And what, what would your role in it be? Right. Well, there's a, some people think it's a dichotomy, a tension between running the country properly, the, you know, the parliament, the government, which people expect you to do, uh, and pursuing an independence campaign. I, I don't believe that. Uh, I think uh, a national leader, an SNP first minister, has to do both. Uh, and one way to approach it uh, is to form a, an independence convention and unite all the various independent parties, Alpha and the Scottish Socialist Party, all the independence parties, the pressure groups, the think tanks, all the, the people who, even Kevin McKenna, who you had on earlier, <laughs> all, all the folk who believe in independence and say, look, let's pursue the independence campaign together. While simultaneously, uh, the Scottish First Minister gets on with the job of sorting out housing, health and education. And you have to do the two things. Because if you pursue the, you know, listen to the siren voices in the unionist media who tell you to forget about independence and just concentrate on the other issues, then, of course, you've got no unique selling point against the Labour Party. You'll, you'll get wiped in the election because people will say, well, you and the Labour Party are really just the same. Uh, you have to have independence to rally the cause to, 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 because that is what has led to the success of the, of the SNP over the, over the last 20 years or so. That, that, you know, independence is on the rise, therefore the SNP is on the rise. People have been voting with the, regard to the view on the independence question. If the SNP backpedals or soft pedals on independence, then it's heading for a disaster at the general election. It yes. has to front up independence as well as running the uh, the parliament properly. And folks say that's difficult. Well, you know, politics is difficult. Government's difficult. These things are difficult. But yes. You've got to. Well, the SNP have made it more difficult for themselves, though, surely, because they've now got themselves into a position where there's fewer people who say they want independence for Scotland than there were um, even, I know, slightly more than when you started with your campaigns back before the last referendum. But, you know, it doesn't look to me like a country that now wants independence. Yeah, but, Mike, there's a big difference, isn't there? I mean, you know, when I led the SNP into government, the SNP vote was much bigger than the independence vote. Uh, A lot of people who didn't believe in independence... We're saying, oh, well, let's give that uh, idiot Salmon the chance. He can't do any worse than the Labour Party. <laughs> sort of thing, you know? uh, but now, of course, the reverse is the case. Even if you take the, you know, the recent polls, let's say 45% or so, that's higher than the SNP vote now. So you've now got more people believing in independence than believe in the SNP. Now, the way you sort that out is you mobilise the independence voters, you give people faith and belief, you, you, you show them that you actually mean it, you're not just playing at it, you're not just sending endless requests for a Section 30 and, and going cap in hand to Westminster, you're planning to force the will of the Scottish people on the Westminster Parliament, that's what inspires people about independence. And secondly, you, you restore faith in the SNP government by well, ditch the Greens, oh, for goodness sake, and, and get yeah. on with running the show. Don't do stupid things like uh, the bottle and the turn scheme or yes. transgender legislation. Get, get on with doing what people expect, running the things that matter to people properly well, govern wisely and competently. Yes. And if you do competently, you'll give people the confidence 
to believe in independence. But I think like in this country, and I say England, I know you'd like me to say that. I, I, I should really say... Britain, I love but, England. Uh, but, no, I know you do, but you want me to say this country as in England rather than Britain. But, you know, the people are sick to death of people who have been in charge for too long. The Tories have been in charge for so long now that everybody just wants to get rid of them, like they did in the end with, uh, with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, like they probably will do in the end, perhaps with the SNP. A bit more difficult to get rid of them up there. But isn't that not a case of sort of voter fatigue now? Well, I'll tell you what, Alipa, which you mentioned earlier, I, I think Alipa have now made a breakthrough because I was in a London taxi yesterday and the taxi driver said to me, he said, what's this new lot you're reading? Uh. <laughs> and it's called Alba or Alipa. He said, right, can you stand down here? <laughs> so I knew that we're making a breakthrough when yes. London taxi drivers are demanding that Alipa, the the new party of Scottish independence stands in England. That, that, that is progress, yeah. Mike. That really is. Well, listen, I look forward to it. I look forward to the next time you're in town. I might buy you a beer. Uh, Alex Salmond, of course, uh, the former First Minister of Scotland, leader of the Alba Party, as recognised by all London cabbies. Uh, this is Talk TV. Laura Dodsworth coming next. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. I was about to report to you on the skies lifting and the clouds moving and the blue emerging, but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, it might be about to happen, though, because Laura Dosworth is here. Very good morning to you. Good morning. Normally, we start with a gloomy sort of sky, and then by the end of the show, it's all sort of sweetness and light, and the sun's come out, and everything's become a lot clearer. But not as yet. It's, I, I, I wish I could agree with that. Normally yeah. we're doom and gloom for a full half an hour, but yes. hopefully make people laugh well, a little listen, bit along you, the way. You uh, made some news of your own at the weekend with that piece in the Sunday Times. Um, a lot of people spoke to me about it. A lot of people read it. Um, it created a great deal of interest. Not everybody liked it, but you know they, they all read it, which is the point, right? And we're talking, of course, about your piece about animals. You mentioned it briefly yeah. last week that you went to see what it would be like to kill your own food effectively. I did. I mean, this is it's quite hardcore. Looking back on the whole experience, mm. it, it is hardcore. Now, it's really got people talking, it's stimulated debate and thinking, and that's great. Mm. You know, that's what you want when yes. you create something, when you write something. There's quite a backlash, which we should come to, but I should probably tell the story of what I did first. I yes. mean, I love eating meat. Mm. I am a pretty committed carnivore. Yeah. Now, I've been a vegetarian a few times. You know, the classic thing, a teenager, I don't want to eat animals anymore. I love yeah. animals. I've done that a few times, but I've never been able to stick to it. And the older I get, the more at peace I am with the fact that, you know, we're animals mm. and there's a natural order of things. And while people can make a choice not to eat meat, the fact is meat is part of our natural diet. Yes. And I eat a lot of it. Yeah. I'm a really committed carnivore. But there's this thing that's been kind of nagging away at my brain, mainly because of the book that I've just written, which is about a lot about free thinking. Yeah. I thought I need to challenge myself. I need to try to be open-minded about this. Am I prepared to change? Mm. Am I prepared to be truly open-minded about what eating meat involves by killing the animal myself? Yeah. I actually challenged a vegan to try and put me off eating right. meat. So he came up with three ideas. The first one was he said I should eat a dog. It's the it's the classic vegetarian vegan right. gotcha, you know. Oh, you know, you can you can eat pigs, but you can't eat dogs. Right. And what they want you to say is you couldn't eat a dog because you love them. And they say, well, you should love all animals and not eat any animals. It's a classic gotcha. Now the thing is, I don't actually want to eat dog, but I would if that was the challenge. But you can't really go out and buy dog in this country. Well, you can't. It's a long way to go no. to Korea or China to yes. have dog for dinner. The other suggestion. I'm not that sure it would taste very good either, to be honest. 
I think there's more to it that we're not supposed to eat dogs because the thing is we're quite hardwired actually to recognize symbols there's lots of studies about Mm. this you know if you show geese who've never seen a bird of prey a cardboard cutout of a bird of prey they know and they're scared you know i think that we when we look at dogs what we recognize is that wolf shape it's a predator animal an alpha animal and we see them as probably competitors for food or Mm. companions we don't see them as food you see a big fat duck or turkey Mm. walking around you know a nice big juicy ground dwelling bird looks like food dog doesn't look like food anyway that aside I, i i that wasn't the challenge for me the other challenge was he said would i go vegan for a month and i was like mate if you want me if you want to challenge my meat eating, do not make me go vegan for a month because that will have me praying for meat. Yes. It won't put me off meat. I will be craving it. Right. I do not want to eat vegan for a month. So he said, okay, how about if you pet and befriend an animal, but then you have to kill it and mm. butcher it and eat it? And I thought, well, this one's probably doable. And it really made me pause. And I thought, gosh, that would be really tough. Yeah. So that's what I decided to do. And I found a small holding that would... Um, that trains people actually to run small holdings mm. that let me you know, indulge this project yeah. and have a go. And so they trained me to kill, butcher and eat a quail one week. Right. And then the following week I returned and did the same with a turkey. And then I would also have tackled a rabbit, but they don't eat their animals till they've grown to the right size. Mm. They're old enough and the rabbits are all too small. Can't say I'm sorry because the rabbits were very... Very, Very cute. cute. Yeah. Indeed. But of course, this is all about hypocrisy as well, isn't it? For people who don't like what you did, but will also eat meat and will say, well, that's a bit grim. Well, yeah, it's a bit yeah. grim. But, but how do you think the meat got into the plastic packaging in the supermarket? You know, somebody had to kill it. Well, that's exactly it. And that's what I wanted to challenge in myself, because it's very easy for me to buy wrapped up meat off a supermarket shelf. It's all clean and sterile. It doesn't look like an animal, does it? It's not making animal noises. There's no no furs. There's no fur. There's no feathers. It's easy. I thought, can I actually do it if I see the whole process? But there are a couple of meat eaters who said, oh, I couldn't do that. And this is kind of whiff of moral superiority. Like they're happy to eat meat, but not to kill it. Yes. And I and all over somebody else to do. Yeah. Someone else can get their Mm. their hands dirty with the business of killing. But really, I just wanted to put my my money where my mouth is. I was trying to challenge my own hypocrisy. Now, it has caused quite a backlash among vegans. And I think that is because I've met the challenge and I'm still a meat eater. You know, there's this vegan article of faith that if everyone had to kill their own animals, they wouldn't eat them. And that, of course, is why he challenged me to do it. Mm. Um, And was he surprised when you accepted that Do You know, I have to say, I haven't gone back to him. I'm a bit scared to point it out because he's a really hardcore vegan. And I think that he'll be upset when he sees the photos because they are quite, you know, it's a very visceral process. They are quite graphic. But, I mean, I read the piece and uh, um, some people that, that I know that read it were a bit horrified by it. But, you know, I've, I've had a similar experience, funnily enough, when I was younger. We used to have two chickens when mm. I was at university. I just left university, actually, and we had them to lay eggs, basically. And then suddenly, um, the, one of them, I think one of them stopped laying eggs. So we took a decision. It was one of those ridiculous situations where I lived with a bunch of guys and we had this meeting and we decided we would kill it um, because it was no longer working for us in our sort of, you know, little household of self-sufficiency. So we imported a guy who was one of the guy's brothers who worked in an abattoir. And he was, he was, so, but I held the chicken upside down and he chopped his head off, mm. basically. And it was the best tasting chicken ever. Um, worst news of all was that we found the eggs at the bottom of the garden. 
Oh, no. And they've just been laying them somewhere else. Oh, my. Wow, if I've been getting some militant vegan so hate, now you're, you're, you're going to get it Well, I get now. so much hate mail, though, that they won't even touch the sides, the vegan stuff. They can just join the rest of the people. Yeah, give me sure. A lot of abuse. Well, I have to say, you know, I'm no stranger to controversial work. This right. is not This is not my first rodeo. But I haven't ever had a backlash like this. The vegans can be the worst of all, actually. Yeah. Now, I don't mind polite disagreement. I don't even mind vehement disagreement. But I found it strange how people kept sending me photographs of blood, abattoir floors, dead animals. And there's a sense, I, I think they weren't trying to persuade me to change my mind. It's just they want to bludgeon me. Oh, they yeah. want to bludgeon anyone they in public. They just love abusing people, yeah. It's well, like a mob, isn't it? Pitchforks at the ready. They want to make it impossible for you to speak up and, yeah. and go against their narrative. Yeah. But also, you know, I got accused of some strange things. People saying, well, you must be into bestiality. I have no idea how that follows from my project. That's a bit odd. It is odd. Yeah. And the title of the article was... I, you know, I love animals. Would I kill my dinner? And people saying, well, you know, if that's what you do to people you love, I pity your family. You're a threat to everyone you love. Right. Like, clearly, because I eat meat, I'm not, I'm not murderous towards my family. Yeah. None of these insults make any sense. But you know, also emails in my personal email, something hold on my personal telephone number. You know, it was really quite an intense barrage mm. of militant. But this is the hatred. world we live in now, isn't it? Where you know they just set upon you. And then they only do it for about probably 24, 48 hours, unless it's particularly bad. But usually, certainly after three days, it's gone. It's, mm. it's a very odd phenomenon for me. It is. It is odd. I mean, it has kind of, it's blowing over. It's blowing over now because, well, it, actually, it might still be going. But what I've done is mute all the conversations yeah. on social media. I'm not looking. So in my mind, it's blown over. It's washing off me like yes. water off a fat duck's I back. I mean, would you regret, I mean, knowing what you know now about the reaction, do you regret doing it? No, I don't. I think there's a few things that are really important when it comes to um, knowing your own mind. Mm. Okay, one is you have to be open minded. If you do not allow yourself to let new ideas in, you're doomed. Mm. The businessman Charlie Munger had a great saying. He said that the human mind is like a human egg. It has a shut off device, just as a sperm gets into an egg and then no other sperm Mm. gets in. Once an idea gets into a brain, it switches off. It doesn't let new ideas in. I don't want that to happen Mm. to me. I went into this experience genuinely prepared to come out of it a vegetarian, if that's how it changed me. I was open to change. And the, the process has changed me, even though I'm eating meat. So you have to be open minded. Then you have to have the courage to talk about it. Because if we're all being open-minded but nobody wants to speak up, we're not in a better place. You have to have free thinking and free speech. And that unfortunately means sometimes you have to have a thick skin and deal with the sticks and the stones that people throw away. And there really isn't anything nice about farming. There isn't that much that's nice about the the preparation of meat and the, the, the killing of the animals. It's not a nice process. But people don't like to think about it. They don't like to think about it. I mean, I couldn't have gone to a more idyllic small holding, to be honest. Yeah. It was a bucolic idyll. It was beautiful. But it brings you right up close to the messiness of mm. life. You know, I saw goats mating, right? Yeah. So I, from conception to eggs and babies to fully grown animals to death yeah. to it then being on the plate. That is the circle mm. of life. You know, it's messy. The interesting thing that I learned from this is, is life is short. And it's messy. And life is tooth and claw. But that's not just the farm. That's not just the animal world. If I look at the reaction that I got, especially on social media, it's like you can lift up a rock and underneath there is this gruesome human tribal attitude. People are ready to fight 
almost to the death over ideas. Well, they do. People well, do they say fight they to are, the death but are over they, ideas. Though? Yeah, but they say they are. A lot of them would never go anywhere near fighting. Many walls are religious. They're mm. over ideas. You know, people will get very, very passionate about their ideas. And so that kind of tooth and claw nature, I think what I'd forgotten... And it, and it came back to me in the reaction to this piece is that tooth and claw is everywhere. It's mm. on Twitter. It's everywhere. And to be completely honest, I'm more comfortable with killing a quail and that meat ending up on my plate than I am with how violently people express their antagonism. Yeah. You know, there's no kindness. There's no tolerance in the debate. Yeah. People go straight into a place of anger. Mm. And that when they do that, they're not creating more respect or understanding. They're creating more polarisation. Yes. I now think, and okay, hashtag not all vegans, but I now think of some vegans as really quite scary yeah. and militants. Yeah, oh, they that are. They're they? prepared to track me down and send oh, me pictures totally of are. dead animals, mm. not to change my mind, but to shut me up and shame yeah. me. Yeah, no, totally. And that is unfortunately the result of what we now have as this kind of sickness of social media, uh, which is appalling. In so many respects. And, and, you know, it brings out the worst in everybody, it seems to me. And particularly those people who are, you know, draconian and intolerant and who are not willing to accept that other people have different ideas. I mean, I've had in this very studio, James Chiaverini, who's a restaurateur, he's got a place in Kensington, he shoots his own um, food down mm. in Sussex. He's got a, a bit of land there and he, he, he gets deer, he gets, you know... He came in, in fact, when I first met him, he brought me squirrel and rabbit uh, tacos, which were delicious. Um, but he had killed them himself in Sussex, in this area where he goes with his gun. Um, and the reaction to that wasn't as bad as, as what you saw, but an awful lot of people were sort of horrified. Yeah. Well, why is he eating squirrel? Well, why wouldn't you? Well, why not? I, I mean, I think that's a brilliant idea. There's a lot of them. There's yeah. a lot of squirrels. There are. And, you know, the thing is about killing game, or, or also very similar Same to the animals deer. on a small you know, body. Had... In Scotland, they do it to control the population yeah. of deer. You have to cull deer. But, you know, um, they have a nice life, and it's a swift end. And I think people forget the big plot twist mm. that's coming to all animals and it's coming to all of us. We all die yeah. in the end. Right. And I think there's a lot of denial about nature, about life and death, and the fact that humans are animals too. Yeah. People just cannot handle and it. I read They're some okay of the buying their, their polythene-wrapped meat, but not with the idea mm. that a furry animal was shot and put into a taco. Right. It's no different, except shooting the furry animal and putting it in a taco might be kinder. Yes. I mean, I saw some of the comments underneath the Sunday Times piece and many people were saying things like, well, the animal didn't choose to die. Well, I mean, there is a kind of, I'm afraid, for want of a better phrase, a pecking order, isn't there? Mm. In in the animal world, I suppose you might say. You yeah. know, you're able to do what you did. A quail can't do that to you. Do you know, that's very interesting about the pecking order. Great term, by the way. Because the thing, the thing is, I think we're in a quite a unique time and place ah. where people don't like to think about this. If you go back, say, to Tudor times, mm. they had a very clear understanding of the order of things. Yes. God, angels, people, animals, plants. Yeah. And, you know, that would fit with a kind of a biblical idea mm. that animals are for people. Yeah. We're, in, we're in a fairly post-religious time now, which right. might be part of people's discussion. I think that's it. part of the problem. But it's also a very Western luxury idea that you can choose to be vegan. Yeah. How many people around the world want more meat on their plate right. because they need the nutrition, they want the food? Mm. There's something that's almost kind of luxurious yeah. and degenerate. I know this is going to sound contrary to what people think because we think of vegetarianism or veganism as the wholesome choice, mm. but there's something that's almost degenerate about the modernity of this choice that you're going to reject what is good for you and natural and what we have eaten for millennia and try to shame people mm. for following their nature. And let's face it, hunting was one of the first things that, that man did. 
for want of a better phrase, man. Um, you know, that was what. Oh, you're we trying to put, wind everyone up today, what aren't you? What we put on earth to do? Well, not really. I'd managed to do it without even trying sometimes. But you know, um, hunting is a, is a is a is a is a, a, a function of living is it not or it was yeah you know not so much now because we get somebody else to do it for us but mm. in the end if you were if we were all back on the sort of you know caveman diet you'd all be going out trying to find the like the, you wouldn't be chasing the local fox down probably yeah and you know quick point actually about about this inevitability and and, and the pecking order and hunting if you clear space to grow a vegan crop you have cleared space where there are no animals, yeah. insects. You know, think about these monocultures yeah. of soy or almonds or whatever. By the, by the nature of doing that, you've introduced pesticides, you know, insecticides. You've got rid of whatever wildlife would yeah. have been on that land. There is no food without death. And so much just, vegan... Just, you've got to pick what death exactly. and how. And so much of vegan food also is very high processed and, and, and highly processed and, and not very good for you, actually. Because mm. in order to recreate the taste of meat, which is seemingly what a lot of them want to do. I mean, why would you want to eat a burger which isn't meat? But you want it to look like meat, you want it to bleed like meat, and you want it to taste like meat. Yeah. Well, just have a proper burger then. There's some very crazy ideas going around about food at the moment. There was another one of the little videos circulating on social media this week promoting the idea of eating insects, yeah. showing wriggling maggots in weird patty shapes. Yeah. I mean, you, I don't know if they're trying to tempt you or disgust you. I've For eaten me, those as well. It's all the disgust. I know you have, yeah. I know, but the idea that we would push not eating the animals we've evolved to eat and instead eat instead. insects. I guess billions of insects would die to say. Also, how a is cow. that any less cruel? I, I don't know. Is it because they're smaller and because we don't really like them? Because surely vegans wouldn't be able to eat insects either, would they? No. I mean, don't would they, they count? No, I don't think so. I don't think I don't think a real vegan would eat insects or shellfish or no. anything. No. Yeah, but you know this reaction on social media. This ties in with something else actually. I think. I mean the. <laughs> I'm coming more and more to the conclusion that our phones are really bad for us. We're carrying around some poison in our pockets. Yeah. And, and oh, look, here's my phone with me right now. Yes, and, you know, my name's Laura and I'm a Twitter addict. OK, yeah. so I'm not I'm not preaching from the moral high ground yeah. here. But this reaction was insane because we've got social media. Yeah. And there's an article in The Times today about kids who are having to go to this new centre for gaming addiction. Yes. Children who are addicted to gaming. You know, video games, yeah. Fortnite, mm. Minecraft, all of it. There are children who are spending many hours every day playing games. Yeah. It's interrupting their sleep. There was a story of, of one child whose um, crack supply of gaming was cut off by the parents. And in the night, he walked in the dark to his grandmother's house where he knew the internet would be on. Wow. What are we doing to ourselves yeah. with technology? Mm. You know, it's making everyone very angry and argumentative and it's creating addictions. Perhaps we all need to put our phones and our games away and get out the bow and arrow. Well, I don't want to give people who are angry a bow and arrow. I mean, that is a problem. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I, the thing is, I'm, I'm in a mixed sort of bag about all of that because um, my kids have been sort of through that, that period of Fortnite and, and Minecraft and they seem to have come out of it. And they're a bit older now and they're 16 and 18 and they don't seem to be that interested in gaming are they on tiktok now instead well one Have of them the, is, is it a cross addiction because yeah, that's what i've got in my one house. of them's on tiktok but not I, I don't think all the time you know um they don't appear to have a problem in that area i suppose is what i'm saying um the 18 year old's got more interested in girls and drinking which is far more healthy as well than god i know by the time that you're grateful that your children are going out to a party <laughs> and getting drunk because they're not playing i the used game to say it to them during lockdown would you go and hang around on the street corner and drink some cider instead of hanging around in the house you know looking miserable but that's, you know, I think for most kids, that's yeah. 
what happens? Obviously, for some kids, they can't handle it. They get addicted. It's a problem. Mm. But I wonder whether that's personality driven or whether it's, you know, their environment that, that leads think, them to do it. But not all of them get like that. I think it's so common, though. And I think it is the environment. It's because it's completely normalised. And I think, unfortunately, that the the attitude is always about self-responsibilization. Yeah. The child shouldn't be addicted. The parent's doing it wrong. But the problem is it's everywhere. Yeah. And for your child to be the only one without a phone or game is really hard. I am not a big fan of legislation, but I, I'm wondering if we do need more controls for young people. Like, it, it sort of ties in with this general... There's a general trend where we're always targeting the individual, the wrongdoer, not looking at what's wrong with the environment. Look at the, the latest crackdown on antisocial behaviour and yeah. the nitrous oxide. Well, I don't like those canisters in the park. I don't like seeing young kids doing it. But why are they all doing mm. it? We're never looking at the bigger problems. Why are, why are kids on games all the time? Why are they not outside playing with their friends? You know, we've, we're totally, we've totally changed how we live in modern life. Yeah. And all of these problems are, are as a result. You know, they're talking about putting NHS logos on games so that kids know that they can go for support what kind of craziness is this mm. where we're saying yeah yeah play all these games that you could get addicted to and then if you do the support for it yes perhaps they just shouldn't be playing it's a bit games like, in the first yeah, place it's a bit like the government giving us free money to pay extortionate bills with instead of telling the people who are giving out the extortionate bills to reduce the bleeding bills you well know. exactly it's all about state intervention the whole time rather yeah. than getting it right in the first place um but what about the government now banning tiktok because you know they can't I don't understand how, one, how the hell TikTok gets onto a government phone anyway. It shouldn't be on there, obviously. Um, I was listening to Piers Morgan. But it's Morgan a communication interview. tool. Some well, of them are on TikTok. Well, yeah, but they're now told that it's banned, right? So they're supposed to be not on it. But if they're on it on their ordinary phone, uh, which is not the government phone, then it doesn't matter because they'll still be followed around with that one. I was listening to Piers Morgan interviewing Benjamin Netanyahu yesterday. He said, are you on TikTok? He said, yes. He's Prime Minister of Israel. You're kind of going, what, what are you doing on TikTok? What's that for? What are you on about? I know, What's wrong you know, with you? I got onto TikTok because politicians were on. I was like, yeah. oh, crikey, now they're on TikTok. And, and I saw these little funny videos being shared, yeah. their laughable attempts to get down with the kids. Yeah. I thought, I'm going to have to get on to, mm. to, to watch them. So now I post on TikTok yeah. too. So it just becomes another part of your suite I've of sort communication I've sort of flirted with it, but I mean, I don't like it very much. So I don't I follow really, you. I don't really use it much, though. I just don't really like it. You I'm use it every week. What are you no, talking about? Mike Graham, you're not. always posting videos Incorrect. on TikTok. Incorrect, no. Find me the last one I posted, and if it was in the last week, I'll pay £500. I might just, you know, pick up your phone, video you myself, <laughs> put you on TikTok and collect my winnings. No, well, in that I'm case, sort of, I bet you were on I'm just wearing, over a week ago. No, you said I haven't a week been on it for, for a while, actually. But I've sort of gone off it, because it's just, I'm just not that interested. I mean, Twitter has been mm. good enough for me, and a bit of Facebook here and there. And Instagram, I don't really do much either. But I just, you know... I know some people can get addicted to it, and it is a very addictive situation, but yeah. I don't know how you legislate about it, though. I don't know how you stop kids from playing those games. It, it just, it's, the whole thing is a minefield. There's, no, there's not going to be any one perfect solution, but I do think TikTok is the crack cocaine of social media. Yeah. You know, much as I don't want to do it, when you're on it, you find yourself flicking, flicking, flicking. Yeah. It's like this, it's this slot machine effect. And, of course, all the social media platforms are very deliberately, knowingly designed to be addictive. Yeah. You know that thing where you pull down and you refresh? Yeah. That is the slot machine effects. All the little noises, the dings, the yeah. words, ding, ding, ding. See, I have They're all like of the that winning sound off. in, maybe in that's a casino. The answer. Well, maybe that's the answer because I, I don't feel yeah. like that when I'm on them. And so maybe because I'm not listening to the noises. Well, you maybe and you I should just mute everything. We're old, so we're doing it all wrong. But that means we're doing it right because I'm the same. I have all my notifications off, right. even the sound. So yeah. even if somebody telephones me, I don't hear it. Yeah. 
I, I sometimes I, miss I find calls on that basis. I miss a lot on my phone, and that means I'm doing it at least half right, I yeah, think. Yeah, I think so. Well, um, fascinating stuff, as ever. Thank you very much. Do you want to give your book a plug while you're here? Which one? Free Your Mind, the, the new one. It's one. got to be. It's got to be. It's out in June. And I don't know if my experience of killing animals is going to persuade people, but I will say that I learn a lot about myself by pushing myself to mm. the limit and doing something that was uncomfortable. And it's made me think quite a lot about my relationship with animals, but also my relationship with humans. And it, I think it was a good thing to do, to push myself into mm. difficult territory and, and challenge those reactions from people. Um, it's just one of the things you'd learn about if you read the book for your mind. Yeah, there you go. And if you're one of those people sending abuse to Laura, stop it. Please. please do. Yeah, don't be horrible. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots of you want to talk to me and we will get you all on, we hope, before the end of the show. We're here until one o'clock, of course, when it's time for Ian Collins. Uh, he'll be here just before that to tell us what's coming up. In this hour, we're going to talk to Stephen Wolf from the Centre for Migration and Economic Prosperity uh, because last night there was a bit of a mini-rebellion uh, in the Tory ranks because uh, there were some backbenchers who didn't quite like uh, the way that the migrants' bill was being drawn up by Rishi Sunak uh, and they want to see a bit more strengthening of it, a little bit more backbone shown uh, to stand up against the European Court of Human Rights and basically number 10 uh, says it won't make any changes uh, to the illegal migration bill um, that would break Britain's commitments under the ECHR. However, um, hopefully uh, the bill will emerge in some new form in about three weeks time after the Easter recess, at which point it will go through and at which point we'll discover whether or not moving people back to Rwanda or to Rwanda for the first time will actually happen. 0344 499 Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham uh, as a podcast. You can get it every single day after the show finishes. You don't have to miss a moment from the show. Simply go uh, to wherever you get your podcast, download it and subscribe to it. Uh, here's a note from Robin who says, Mike, can you explain that statement you made, uh, that quote, you have to cull deer, please, uh, prove that you can't. Man was originally a herbivore, according to my old biology teacher. The caveman would very rarely catch an animal for food, so the argument that we need meat is not Nonsense. Well, I think the argument from your former biology teacher is probably nonsense by the sounds of it, because the reason we have teeth uh, is that we need to eat meat in order to use those teeth. You don't need to eat um, to munch vegetables with teeth. You could eat vegetables without having any teeth. But that's why humans have got teeth. That's why uh, most carnivores have got teeth, because you need to eat meat. And that's why we've evolved in the way that we have. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, if somebody told you that cavemen didn't catch animals, uh, why did they have spears? Why did they have implements uh, that they could throw at things? wasn't them throwing them at each other, were they? Anyway, uh, enough of that. Let's go back uh, to uh, what we were talking about before, which is Rishi seeing off the Tory rebels who wanted to sink his migrants' bill. Um, the small boats crisis goes on. Uh, there's still people coming every single day uh, that the weather is clement enough for them to do so. Uh, let's find out from Stephen Wolfe what the latest situation is. Stephen, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. So, I mean, we edge inexorably towards something, but I'm not quite sure what it is that we're edging inexorably towards. The one thing that we can be sure about is that the boats haven't stopped coming and they will continue to come as long as the people getting on them know that as soon as they get here, they won't have to go anywhere. That's true. What you, what you have at the moment is a government that's trying to be involved in two distinct strategies. Mm. Uh, the first is to prevent the boats from coming to the UK and particularly the south coast of England 
and break the people smugglers model, which says that once you get here, you can easily apply for asylum, get into accommodation, and you will never be returned. Mm. And the way they're doing that is by trying to have enhanced procedures with the French, more drones, more staff, and that's why we're going to be paying them half a billion. And the second uh, part of the strategy is to discourage people from thinking that they could actually stay in the UK. And that is where this bill comes in. And the bill is effectively saying within 28 days, we can deport you to a country such as Rwanda. And I do believe that in the future, we'll see potentially other countries being involved in that. Mm. And as a consequence of that, there's this big row going on in uh, the Conservative Party and in Parliament about what this bill's powers should or should not be allowed to do. And this rebellion from one side is to match the rebellion on the other side that wants to have it more open. Yes, because there are some who fear that it will be too restrictive and it will be too um, kind of against international law, if you like, uh, and, and will somehow put Britain in a bad light. I don't think that can be possibly true because surely to heavens... Britain should have its own right to admit whoever it likes. I mean, I get uh, arguments from people all the time uh, on Twitter who say, you know, if you land at an airport without a passport, there's a pretty good chance that you'll be sent straight back to wherever you came from. But if you come on a small boat, you're allowed in, given a hotel room and given food for the for the rest of, your, the, rest of the year. Well, it's a very clear principle of international law and e even within the UN Convention on Refugees and its various amendments that no country has to necessarily accept somebody from coming into their country and that they don't have to have restrictions on those people arriving. Yeah. All it does say is that if somebody claims asylum, they have to look at that asylum place and, and apply a variety of principles, which is one is non-refoulement, returning them to the country where they're concerned of coming from. So you can't send an Iraqi straight back to Iraq. And you've got to provide them with accommodation, ability to make the claim, which why, is why we have legal aid. Now, what we have very clearly, Mike, here is no requirement that they have to have asylum in the UK, which is why it's possible to be able to have these assessment centres in the UK or elsewhere, including Rwanda, mm. to make these assessments. There's nothing that breaches international law. The European Courts of Human Rights are slightly more different because they believe that they have powers to enhance the UN Refugee Convention through international law. And that is where the big action is going to be. They're going to say that you have to make the claims here because we have judicial review and appeal system. And that pl applies more fundamentally uh, in this country rather than it would do in Rwanda. Yes. But I mean, what nobody ever says and what I think people should start saying is, is that it's very obvious that the asylum system that we have currently in this country is out of date. It's not fit for purpose. It was invented at a time when people didn't travel in mass numbers across the channel um, in uh, in small boats, which are getting bigger by the by the week, by the way. Uh, so not, pretty soon you have to stop calling them small boats. They're quite big boats and you're going to get 50, 60 people on them. And the point is that, you know, people come here and... and one of the reasons that, that, that they say that they get asylum is because they eventually qualify for it. But, of course, they qualify for it because they know the system and they qualify for it by saying things like, if I go back to my land of, of my birth, I'll be tortured or, uh, you know, I'm a homosexual, therefore I must be, be able to stay here for safety for my life. You know, and so they know how to, how to, get, how to beat the system and that's why they all keep getting, you know, 80% of them get asylum. It, it, it is very true that what you've got is, if you look at the UNHCR figures, right, there's about 110 million people across the globe who are displaced. Yeah. They regard about 35 and a half million people are asylum applicants. But they also recognise from the World Bank and including the Commission, European Commission itself 
that there is an increasing number of people coming in to various countries making claims who are economic migrants. Mm. There's an estimate that 60% of them. And where the systems are failing, both in Europe, in the United States, where three and a half million people entered the US last year, is that there is no clear international legislation or law or convention, such as an amendment to the UN convention, that says what you can do with economic migrants and can you return them. And I've always called for a new international convention that includes those countries that are taking in the largest number of asylum seekers, such as Pakistan and Iran, and those that are facing the largest numbers of economic migrants to actually start defining what is an immigrant, a migrant, mm. an economic migrant, because those latter two words are not e even defined in the convention. Yes, because again, the argument from, from the, the sort of lefty lawyers, for want of a better phrase, is that, well, you know, the only way they can come here is by boat. And that's purely and simply the only safe route, or because there isn't another safe route, which is also patently nonsensical, isn't it? Well, to, to an extent, what we've seen is that you get people in this country who claim asylum once they've been here for work or study. The large numbers increasing on that. There are still those coming over on the backs of lorries, mm. but the largest number are boats. And, and if you want to claim asylum, there isn't really anywhere now at the moment, unless you've come from Ukraine or one of the smaller schemes related to Afghanistan, where there is these safe routes. Right. But no international nation has a safe routes policy. They all work with the UNHCR oh. to have schemes that allow them to come in. And what's important about this particular piece of legislation, Mike, is that we would be the first country that says we will create safe routes, and the estimate is 20,000 a year, but only providing we stop the boats coming across. And I think that's a groundbreaking mm. piece of, uh, of legislation that should be welcomed by those who believe in... Uh, having a safe route into the United Kingdom. We would be the first again. Yeah. But again, um, those who would say that we should be taking these people in and taking more of them in say, oh, well, the reason they come here is, one, uh, they may have English as a, f as, as, a, as a second language and it may be the only other language they speak. That's why they can't stay in France, because they can't speak French, which, again, seems fanciful. And two, oh, well, they've got family here. Well, surely if they've got family here, there is a way for them to apply to come and live here with them, isn't there? There are ways that you can apply, and there are certainly schemes. What you have in the initial decisions of all asylum is very few, actually less than 30%, are actually accepted as the reasons to be able to stay here, what most people call asylum, under the Refugee Convention. Most of them come under the ECH or, or our own discretionary rules, mm. which need to be dealt with as well, Mike, because that's the biggest number. And that includes those who are sick or are ill or have family members here. But when you look at those family members, large numbers of those family members are the ones who came over in the boat and would get well, granted asylum in the first place. this is the thing. Place. And so, therefore, it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy because Absolutely. You know, when the government says we will let 20,000 people in legally and that's going to be the new bill and the new, the new number, but what happens when all of those 20,000 people have five members of their family that want to come and then suddenly you've got an awful lot more people? Well, that's one of the reasons why you've got quite a large boon. There isn't a big attraction for those who are coming across the boats, because in the, the past 10 years, large numbers of their family members who are large or, 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 or bigger groups that they know are able to come over. When I first went to the camps in 2014 in France, it was very clear then that there were a large number of Somalians, Iraqis and, and Afghans who were coming over and they wanted to come to England because they had better education opportunities, better job opportunities than they did at home. They're now here and they're able to make a, a, a safe place for family members to say we can claim. Mm. 
that needs to be considered in any legislation. It needs to be considered in the numbers. But I don't yet think the government is putting two and two together on that, or indeed Parliament, in the, in, in the process of this new immigration bill. Yeah. I mean, it really is a ridiculously useless system. I can't think of one bit of it that actually works, apart from the fact that it's the most efficient way to get anywhere, uh, it would now seem, because it's more efficient than the trains in this country. It's easier than getting in a car because you don't get stuck in traffic. And people are moving here at a massive rate. It's incredible how, how efficient this is being. And people have also said to me, Steve, uh, how difficult could it be for the authorities to track the people smugglers? Because, you know, um, we've got drones, we've got the ability to know where money gets moved, to we've got international investigations on the go we do occasionally arrest them i mean surely it must be uh, something that they should be looking at more closely well this has been a big issue for some time like, and, and, and really what we have seen is a, a greater expense of money time resources and technology being pushed into this area that's one of the big parts of the deal that's being dealt uh, considered with the french it's also part of the proposals with the Albanians, where we have that deal to be able to return them very quickly. I am aware that we are looking in with our European partners and stretching across the globe because I've seen drone evidence where people are getting on the backs of lorries in Afghanistan, paying the Taliban about $50 for their first journey to get across to Turkey. I'm certainly aware of really deep concern in Turkey and the establishment of a new political party that is looking at immigration, asylum and uh, refugees in their country as being a big problem for them and the way that's linked in with organised crime. And we do know that they work together with the uh, smugglers of drugs on their routes, but not necessarily with the method of getting over them right. just for protection. So it's a big integrated organisation. It's a big inter inter international challenge as well. And we are working on it, but it's not successful enough at the moment. No. Marcus um, has sent me a text message. He's got the answer. He says, um, the answer is easy, Mike. Give the illegal migrants uh, British citizenship straight away. That way they'll be entitled to nothing. Uh, no house, <laughs> no dentist, no legal aid. <laughs> there you go, in a nutshell. Stephen, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Centre for Migration and Economic Prosperity. Uh, well, economic prosperity if you come here illegally, I suppose, because uh, then you get uh, to live in a nice hotel. There's an awful lot of people, by the way, who are currently getting in touch with me to say that there's another hotel in their town. There's another uh, demonstration going on at the weekend. There's an awful lot of ill feeling around about this. This government needs to get this sorted and sort it sooner rather than later, because otherwise it's going to go horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, Louise says this, Mike, with regard to the Oxford residents stopping people driving, I've recently been looking into our common law and constitution. I'm very much a beginner, but I do know that under common law, we as sovereign men and women are free to go about our business so long as we cause no harm, no loss or no injury. They have no right to stop anyone because it is against our inalienable rights pronounced inalienable. Yeah, I know how to pronounce it. I strongly recommend everyone looks into common law and the constitution. We have rights as sovereign men and women and we need to educate ourselves. And that's from Louise. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, if anybody tries to stop me driving somewhere and it is not um, a, a general uh, roadblock that's been put there by the police or by the council, even if it's by the council, a lot of people have been moving them out of the way. But if it's just a couple of bozos in yellow vests, high visibility jackets telling you you can't drive there, I think like the woman in the, in the video, you'd be quite right to be absolutely irate about that. But we'll come back with more calls on that coming shortly. 0344 499 1000. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app.
If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.